and good morning to those on the live stream. It's, I'm glad that you're able to join us. Um, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we will be considering verses 11 to 22. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Now, I think, not sure it came out in the town hall Q&A, but I, I remember when I met with the deacons and the search committee, they asked me, what do you know about Guelph? And I told them, um, not much. The only thing I really know about Guelph is that my grandmother was, is buried at Woodlawn Cemetery. And I think one of the deacons said, well, we'll, we'll try to change your understanding of Guelph. <laughs> and I'm beginning to realize that this is a wonderful place to be. Um, now, when I was in seminary, I helped to take care of my grandmother. And it was heartbreaking, frankly. Because I saw this strong, intelligent woman who had raised five kids as a single mom reduced to a mere shadow of her former self by Alzheimer's. The memory loss that Alzheimer's brings about is a horrible thing, isn't it? But you know, it does not compare to the danger of forgetting the goodness of God and who he is. The history of Israel shows that forgetfulness inevitably leads to unfaithfulness. And so, over and over in the Old Testament, you see these calls to remember. And remembering isn't simply calling to mind, as in I remembered to put on my glasses or to bring my glasses. Neither is it an invitation to nostalgia. The biblical notion of remembering is a disciplined recounting of God's faithfulness that interprets the past and motivates us to persevere in faithful obedience in the future. That's a big mouthful, but as I think one scholar put it well, Remembering allows us to walk backwards into the future. Remembering the faithfulness of God that he had proven in the past so that we are encouraged to move into the future with confidence that God will continue to enable us to face the future, the challenges that lie ahead. And that's why the Apostle Paul is eager in this text for the church to remember their past. So let's read it. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, having described our past in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, our zombie-like existence outside of Jesus, Paul now moves from an individual description to a corporate description. He describes how we were corporately. And he reminds the Ephesian church, which was at that time made up of both Jews and Gentiles, how they were at each other's throats before God brought them to faith. And that mutual hostility is captured in verse 11 by the name-calling that was going on. Uncircumcised and circumcised were actually insults that Jews and Gentiles were hurling at each other. Circumcised describes the Jews, Uncircumcised was a term that Jews used to describe Gentiles. And it, it wasn't a very polite term. It was a derogatory expression of disdain. Think of David when he described Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. He said, well, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It was a term saying he's unclean and of no account. Now, sadly, the Jews themselves were blind to their own plight. Because even as they took pride in the fact that they were circumcised, Paul says that circumcision is made in the flesh by hands. To imply that they may have been outwardly circumcised, but what they needed was the circumcision of the heart. So that they were in... In truth, very much just like the Gentiles. However near they might have been to God, it's like Jesus telling that teacher of the law, commending him with a sort of a backhanded compliment. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Close, but no cigar. You're near, but you're not in. And the way that Jews and Gentiles dehumanized each other by their name-calling 
that reduced each other to a specific religious practice is a microcosm of the division of our world, isn't it? A broken world and a divided humanity. Now, looking back, interpreting this in light of the Old Testament, God had brought the Jews into covenant relationship so that they would be a light to the nations. God gave them the law so that their distinctive communal life that was shaped by the commands of God would demonstrate the goodness of God's purposes. He had set them apart so that their nearness to him would be a bridge leading people to God. The problem is, the Jews selfishly misused God's grace and became barriers. The covenant privileges that God had graciously granted them became a platform for prejudice out of their sinful pride. And so instead of living out God's law to draw Gentiles to him, they used the law as a wall to keep Gentiles away. It is a picture of how sin distorts even what is good. And before we condemn the Jews, I hope you realize you and I are just as susceptible to such selfishness. Cornelius Plantinga Jr. in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, gives this observation which ought to serve as a warning for all of us. He says, some of us retreat into the small world defined by our friends, work, church, and family and build a snuggery there. Inside it, we may be busy enough, but only with only local concerns. Perhaps on television, we watch with disdain or amazement, with disdain of amazement, the passing show of misery, novelty, and grief in the larger world outside. But if our insulation is good enough, we needn't be significantly disturbed by it, and in any case, we do not wish to be inconvenienced by it. We do not welcome strangers into our lives or homes, and we do not go out to meet them. Claiming allegiance to the Christ who speaks in active imperatives, go, tell, witness, declare, proclaim. We Christians, nonetheless, prefer to keep the bread of life in our own cupboard and to speak of it only to those who already have it. Do we subconsciously suppose that in such inbred silence, We can keep our dignity, and unbelievers can go to hell where they belong. God forbid that these words would ever describe you and me. That's why we need to remember who we were. This description of Gentiles probably applies to all of us unless somebody here is of Jewish extraction. As Gentiles, we had no share in the promises given to the Jews since we were not part of the nation. And because we were not part of the nation of Israel, we were not in the covenant God had made with Moses. That's what 
All is say, remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ. You had no part in the Messiah, who alone is the hope of the world. You're strangers. So the covenants of promise alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And because Christ is the only hope of the world, then we have no hope. And worse, without God in the world. This is not to say that we did not have or that we did not worship. Calvin says that our hearts are factories of idols. It is not the question of if we worship. It is a question of whom we worship. And Paul in telling us that we were without God is describing the awful reality that we were alienated from the one true and living God. Whatever gods we might have worshipped could not save us. And their false promises only left us enslaved and corrupted, as we talked about last week. We were cut off from the true life that only God can give. That was our real plight. Friend, if you are here and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, this text tells us that no matter how self-assured, admired, and accomplished you might be, apart from God, this is your real condition. That was our condition. But in the same way that chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, goes from before to talk about after. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, but God. Here in verse 13, we see the grace of God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul says that neither Gentile ignorance nor Jewish arrogance could thwart God's redemptive purposes. He is utterly determined to save his people so that the Son of God became man that he may lay down his life for us and so bring peace. We're not simply talking about a cessation of hostility. We're not talking about a ceasefire. We're talking about real peace. Shalom, if you will. Again, I'm going to reference Cornelius Plantinga Jr. He gives a great definition of shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And Paul is emphatic Jesus did not just bring about peace. He says, Jesus himself is our peace. Look at verse 14. 
For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, by his death and resurrection, he eliminates the hostility between Jewish and Gentile Christians. He brings in the new covenant by his death and resurrection. And in so doing, he breaks down the barrier that separated Jews from Gentiles. It is nothing less than the law covenant. I think that's what he is talking about in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he came, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. That law of commandments expressed in ordinances is the Mosaic covenant. And I know there's a lot of debate about the meaning and implications of these verses. But I thank Peter Gentry and Stephen Wallum, who are Canadian colleagues of Michael Haken at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, explain the passage well. And I'm going to cite their second edition of Kingdom Through Covenant. They say, in Christ and in his reconciling cross, the law covenant has been brought to fulfillment and thus torn down. That's the same sentiment that is expressed in Hebrews chapter 8. The law covenant purposefully given to temporarily separate Jews and Gentiles is now fulfilled. The result is the creation of the church so that both Jews and Gentiles together now have peace with the triune God and covenantal access to him and together inherit the same promises. It tells us that you and I, the church, we are God's new humanity brought into existence by Jesus through his death and resurrection so that we are no longer in Adam. We are now in the last Adam. We are now in Christ. He has made us new creations and given us a new identity. We are in Christ. He represents us. He defines us. And that identity that he gives us transcends ethnic and social boundaries so that we could say we are one in Jesus Christ. There's an even better thing that he has done. He has reconciled us to God through his cross. That's in verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Both Jews and Gentiles needed to be reconciled to God. That's exactly what Jesus accomplished on the cross. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserve so that God's wrath has been appeased. And as we sang a while ago, his righteousness is credited to us in union with him. So that when God looks at us, he sees us in Christ. He sees Jesus who fully pleased him and he is delighted with us. That's our status. That's our identity. That's why as sinful as we have been this week, we can sing and rejoice in God and know that he is pleased despite how we have lived. 
because he sees us in Jesus Christ and our praise is offered through Jesus Christ. It's not about our performance. God is reconciled to us. And on the flip side of that, because we have been made part of the new covenant, our foolish, futile rebellion has been subdued. God has given us new hearts on which his law is written, hearts in which his spirit dwells. So now we are able to love him who loved us and gave himself for us. That's the shalom that he is talking about. It is a restored relationship the way it was supposed to be. And that reconciling act of Christ that reconciled us to God is now the foundation of our reconciliation with one another. That's what he's talking about when he says, thereby killing the hostility. Our common share in the blood of Christ binds us together. And the wonderful reality is that by his death, he killed our hatred for each other. It is a wonderful death. And I appreciate the way Timothy Gombis fleshes out this transformative act of God's reconciling work. God has created a radically new people, a new humanity, one in which racial, ethnic, and gender differences are no longer sources of division and destruction. They are now opportunities for doing good, celebrating the wide variety of humanity in God's good world and rejoicing in one another. It's not that our differences are eliminated. It's that we can perceive these differences as good Things, as things to celebrate. In fact, that's one of the things that attracted me to Crestwick. The fact that you're willing to embrace somebody like me and all my weirdness and strangeness <laughs> as your lead pastor means that you understand what grace is all about. <laughs> and don't worry, you'll understand more and more what grace is about when you... <laughs> As you get to know me, not because I, measure, I model it, but because you exercise it. It tells me that you understand the gospel vision of the church as a people drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And I was excited, and I am still excited to be part of this church because together we can live out and embody the reconciliation that Christ has brought about. We can embody the beauty of God's new humanity, diverse and yet unified by faith union with Jesus. And as God's new humanity, we celebrate the fact that Jesus has reversed our former status of absolute exclusion and alienation from God by his death. That gives us now complete, unfettered access to God. Look at verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the message of that curtain in the temple 
that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus gave up his life on the cross. It is to say what the writer of Hebrews tried to communicate in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opens for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. That's our privilege right here, right now. We may not have the ear of the mayor or the counselor for this ward or the premier or the prime minister. It doesn't matter. The king of kings and lord of lords delights to hear our prayer. God listens to us, according to Paul, because we are his people. Look at verse 19. What does it mean to have free access? So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Where once we were aliens and strangers, enemies of God under his wrathful judgment, we are now citizens of his kingdom. A friend of mine lost her passport some time ago, and she needed to go back. She's an American citizen. She needed to go back to the States. And I asked her, so what are you going to do? And she said, well, it's not a problem. I'm an American citizen. They have to let me in. See, that's the privilege of access. It's the same thing for Canadian citizens, by the way. <laughs> they have to let you into Canada. That's what access is about. You belong here. But here's a different kind of access. Here's a different kind of identity. An identity, an access, a citizenship that is more important than your passport. If you belong to Jesus, then you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God that is eternal. And if that be the case, then we belong to King Jesus to serve his purposes. More than that, look at what Paul says. We're not simply citizens with the saints. We are also members of the royal family. Look at what he says. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Look at the guy next to you or the lady next to you. Do you realize you're sitting next to a prince or a princess? That's, that's our status. We are children of the king. We dare to call God Father as his adopted children, as his adopted sons. And I use the language of sonship to convey the fact that we are joint heirs with the Son because we are members of the household of God. Peter O'Brien describes the implications of that in terms of the Roman context. He says, in the Roman world of the day, 
To be a member of a household meant refuge and protection, at least as much as the master was able to provide. It also meant identity and gave the security excuse me, that comes with a sense of belonging. So understand that, friends. We are under the protection of the sovereign Lord of the universe. We don't need to be afraid of anything. God's got our back. We who used to be hopeless and godless are now members of his household. We are children of the true and living God. He has folded us into his forever family so that you and I are no longer alone in the cosmos. We are part of God's family. And Paul emphasizes these things because he wants us to be grateful to God for his grace. He reminds us of our past so that we may understand more fully the lavishness of his goodness to us. Not so that we would break our arms patting ourselves on the back but so that we would be motivated to live out the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. So look around you, please. And I challenge you to think of three reasons why you would never want to be around those people. When I asked this at the church I used to pastor, one of the girls sitting in front said, Pastor Arjay, are you trying to break us up? I said, no. You got your three reasons why you would never want to be around these people? You got them? Because I was going to ask, are my, I want you to ask yourself, are my reasons to reject the people around me greater than the love of Christ for me? Think of all the reasons why you wouldn't want to spend time with that guy or that lady, why you could never be friends. Paul is saying, guess what? Christ died and rose again to make us into one new humanity so that you and I can live out reconciliation and shalom so that natural enemies become beloved friends, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. See, the people around you are the people whom God has given you to love just as he loved you. And these are also the people whom God has put into your life to love you. Isn't that scary <laughs> and amazing? And yes, I know, it's hard. But that's the point. The only way you and I can love one another is to be found in the reconciling work of Jesus in the fact that he died 
for that person next to you. He died for that person whom you can't really stand, (laughs) but who is your brother. And so our pride is crucified, our preferences are put to death. And we are humbled, driven to our knees, just as the disciples responded to Jesus when they asked him, so Jesus, is seven time, forgiving my brother seven times in a day enough? And Jesus said, I mean seven times. 70 times seven, more like it. They said, Lord, increase our faith. It's the same thing for you and me. As you think of the challenge, the task of loving your brother or sister who makes you grit your teeth for whatever reason, increase my faith, Lord and drives us back to Jesus Christ. And please understand, he doesn't want us to simply have this abstract, fuzzy feeling of goodwill to all. He wants us to love one another in concrete ways. My family and I are grateful for the meal train that you've set up. It actually gives me a tremendous break because... My job is to cook on Sundays. <laughs> so thank you all for giving me a break. <laughs> That's an expression of love, but I, I'm trusting that we would not be the only ones benefiting from your generosity. See, as a community of shalom, we need to demonstrate the reconciliation Christ has brought about. So I hope you don't mind this next example. If the leaves and the habs... Ooh, make it to the playoffs this year. I am trusting that Leafs fans would be kind to Habs fans and vice versa. And that even if you do go back and forth over the respective merits of your teams, it would be good-natured and not mean-spirited because our identity is not tied to these sports teams, Right? We have a better identity. They're all losers anyway. (laughs) Oops. And you will be loving to Yankees fans like me. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Seriously, though. We need to be ready to forgive those who do us wrong. Not just to say, yeah, I forgive you, but to actually work to repair the fractured relationship. The same way, a couple of years ago, I, I blew it with a dear friend of mine at the church, and he was very hurt by my actions. I tried to call him, call him, ghosted me for a week. Finally, We came together at a wedding, and he forgave me, and we were reconciled in the fullest sense, so that even now, we get together and have meals together, and the past is past. 
we don't hold it against each other. See, that's what Jesus is talking about here, of being so devoted to one another that we will not let anything stand in the way of our relationship. That through thick and thin, we would hold each other accountable and be willing to be held accountable. To be so committed to unity that we would be able to disagree without being disagreeable. And to hold the lines of communication open so that we work through our differences because we are bound together by something more important than our politics, than our hermeneutics, than whatever it is that we would potentially want to allow to get in the middle of our relationship. We are bound together by the blood of Jesus. And that's what matters most. We're going to be together for eternity, so we might as well get used to it (laughs) and enjoy it (laughs) in the here and now. And I can, you know, I can see that we're already a loving congregation. But the fact that there's a chill in the room when I talk about this means that we still need to keep growing in that love. And, And that's standard practice anyway in any congregation. The biggest room in the world, my teacher used to say, is room for improvement. See, God wants us to bear witness to the goodness of his purposes as a community. Look at verse 20. We are being built by God into his temple. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And Paul is saying this to the people of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, surrounded by all sorts of pagan temples, one of them being the temple of Artemis. And Paul is saying, do you not realize that you, the people of God, In Ephesus are God's alternative to the pagan temples proliferating around you. And it's the same situation here. We, the people of God, located on 400 Speedvale Avenue East, Guelph, are God's alternative temple to all the temples of idols around us. You guys probably know those temples better than I do because I haven't been around. This is where I kind of hang out. But the point of it is that's our identity. That's our calling to be God's representatives here in this location, in this place. And we are built together by God through the gospel. That's why he says we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets proclaim the person and work of Jesus who is the cornerstone. Christ is the object of our faith and he is our stability. 
We are united with him. And in union with him, he is building us up together. Notice how he is fitting us individually into his temple. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's an amazing thought. But God has handpicked you and me to be part of this temple. If I may be so bold, I'm not the only one called to this church. I get that you called me to be your pastor. And God designed for me to be called your pastor. But I think in light of this text, you, and I, you, you all have to recognize that you're also called into this congregation. This is not a consumer choice. This is a God choice. But God has specifically put you in this congregation to be part of this holy temple that he is building so that we together, by our life together, might be an outpost of his kingdom. And you notice that it's not a static temple. It's the image of continuous growth in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. People are being added by God to the building through faith. It's not about attendance. It is about union with Christ. And Paul describes us as a holy temple because God has set us apart to grow in conformity to the character of Jesus. We might grow in attendance, we might grow in membership, but if we're not discipling people, we're not quite becoming that holy temple yet. It has to go side by side. Our union with Christ leads us to becoming more and more like him in community as individual people are being built up into the image of Christ. The whole body becomes more and more like Jesus Christ so that together we become more and more compelling witnesses proclaiming the excellencies of our Savior. And the end result of God's work is that we would be God's dwelling place by his spirit. Imagine that. God, who is too great to be constrained by heaven and the highest heavens, condescends to dwell with us. Do you realize how amazing a worship service is? This isn't just a gathering of ordinary Joes and James. We are gathering with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is present with us. Who's not just hanging around observing. Who is actually communing 
with you and me. Relating as a father present with his children. Where once we were alienated from God, now we are indwelt by him. So that you and I, strangers to God's grace, are now brought into the fellowship of the triune God, folded into the mutual delight of Father, Son, and Spirit. Tim Keller calls it being brought into the dance of the Trinity. They share with us their life, love, and fellowship. And as we commune with Father, Son, and Spirit, we are actually experiencing the purpose for which they made us in the first place. To glorify God by enjoying forever. So that in our worship, we are truly human. And in the here and now, we experience that in part. As we worship him together, we are engaging with God. But we're also an imperfect community, aren't we? There's all those resentments. There's all that distance between, I don't know that person. Not sure I even like that person. But here's our hope. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Our hope is that one day when Christ returns, we will enjoy that intimate communion with one another and with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to the fullest. That will be eternal. And we're sure that this hope will come to pass because it is God who is at work by his spirit. He will make it happen. He is making it happen right here, right now. Our task, our responsibility is to lean into his work so that our communal life would be an increasingly faithful foretaste of the shalom that is to come. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for the privilege you've given us of being your dwelling place that the maker of heaven and earth condescends to live with us, in us, condescends to build us into his dwelling place. Oh Lord, such a privilege and such a responsibility. And it is our prayer as your people that you would continue that work that you have begun in us of knitting our hearts together as we have been bound to Christ and as we draw near to Christ by your work, we draw near to one another also. We pray 
that our church would be characterized by love, by harmony, by mutual care, so that when people come into our midst, they wouldn't be so much impressed by the music, by the preaching, by the building, but that they would see that you dwell with us because we are a people who love one another and whose love for one another overflows into love for those who come into our midst and doesn't even wait for people to come into our midst. But just like the delight of the, just as the delight of the Trinity in one another overflowed in love to create us and to reach out to us when we had rebelled, that we as a church, in love, in delight, in you, would reach out to those outside the church so that they too may share in this delightful fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit. We thank you that you are indeed at work. And we pray that in the coming days, we would see your work more fully taking place in our midst. As we ask in Christ's name, for his sake, for his glory.